Hello, it's Lee Sales. And it's Annabelle Crabb and we're on microphone. Oh my God, we've got something really exciting to tell you all, which is that after the last podcast, if you were listening with the constant doors opening and closing and me basically being roasted alive, um, my husband had had enough. <laughs> I came home one day and he'd bought the most romantic gift of a couple of microphones that we can yeah. plug into my Double iPhone. Jack, baby. <laughs> waka, waka. Oh my God, I still got it. I can't lose the innuendo. I feel sort of like a couple of horses tethered to a pole because just to paint the picture for people it's like the iPhone's sort of the post and then there's a cable coming out that each of us are tethered onto yeah, a couple of a, nags some if there's even a say. fire right now this would be really tricky <laughs> I think it's going to be problematic when we go out on the road because yeah. how are we going to you're going to go off in search of a it'd be like that Jean-Claude Van Damme ad you know that fan did you, did you no. see that oh my god it's an ad for like Volvo or something it, don't you love the best ads you can never remember what the actual product yeah. is it's some car and the camera, like, starts really close in on Jean-Claude Van Damme's hilarious face, um, or what remains of it after the <laughs> profound amount of um, cosmetic surgery that guy has no doubt had. Um, and he's talking about, you know, strength is the key or something, and you're like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then it pans back, and it turns out that he is, he is doing the splits, like, sort of, Frontwise, you know, not in a, you know, in a kind of like his legs are going oh. at the right angles. Oh my god! And each foot is kind of resting on the. Roof oh, I of have a seen truck. this. Yeah, right. Like, so he's balancing on two trucks that are pelting along at top speed while he <laughs> ruminates about. It is the freakiest thing. Did he ever. actually do that, or is it some special computer? Well, I refer you to the thirty thousand pages of internet speculation <laughs> on that exact point. I don't think it was conclusive, but anyway. So, right, right. There we go. I'm just kind gonna, of reminds me of that. A bit well, before. I'm just pointing out that I am never, for an episode of the podcast, going to be doing the splits between a couple of moving vehicles. I just want to get that well, right out a, there. It's, it's good to hear you take that off the table. I know I'm a killjoy. <laughs> it's like superannuation reform. That. We're not going to do. <laughs> yeah, we're also not doing that. I'm um, part of the big conversation. <laughs> Every time I welcome people to Chat 10 Looks 3 also, I feel a little sort of, well, gee, I feel vain that we're giving ourselves 10 out of 10 for chat, but I'm hoping right. that it's tempered by the fact that we're giving ourselves the three for looks. God, only you could worry about that. <laughs> I stole the line, lady. That's enough for me. The chain of responsibility is broken. Now, what have you been up to? Mm. Well, hey, I've been reading a book that we sort of discussed um, a couple of weeks ago, John Ronson's book, So You've, yeah. been, so you've been Publicly Shamed. Now, I love this. Look, I've read some um, excerpts like you had, you know, mm -hmm. and I went on to grab the book, and it is ten times better even than the excerpts. I'm loving it so much. It's mm, okay. so interesting. It's well-researched. It's full of kind of hideously compelling glimpses into the disasters that have befallen others, something I very much like in the book. Um, <laughs> that is an enduring theme I'm noticing know, in books I that know, you like. I can't hide it. Um, and I like it so much that I don't even mind the split infinitive in the title anymore, which bothered me for about the first hundred pages. Like I actually had to cover up the cover because I am quite bothered by split infinitives. So, so you've been publicly shamed. I can even say it. It's so good. Um, it's all about, I mean, as we've discussed before, it's about, you know, people who have been at the centre of these sort of terrifying modern pecking parties that happen on social media. You know, there's the, um, the story that was extracted was the one about that PR agent who did that stupid tweet about, um, I'm going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just joking, I'm white, mm. got on the plane. And when she got off, she was sacked. 
she was the number one global trending topic on Twitter and so on. Mm. So he's talked to a bunch of these people who have gone through these sort of incredible shaming kind of um, situations. Are they ones we would have heard of? Like oh, yeah, famous there's, ones? There's, there's right. some, yeah, that right. you, you've heard of. And I, it's, he writes so well about this modern phenomenon and he dates it back to, you know, ancient practices of public shaming and he's, there's also a, like a lot about kind of crowd psychology and stuff in there and he just takes a really imaginative he tells a great story he always takes the extra step to find the person like he he talks a bit about that famous um stanford experiment you know the one about the prison guards oh yeah um where uh you know, these participants were broken up into half half guards and half prisoners in an imaginary prison kind of experiment. And within about three days, the guards had just turned into these incredibly horrific people and beating and humiliating the, 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 the prisoners, even though it was, you know, in a controlled environment. It's quite terrifying what happened to these people. Anyway, he's gone and tracked down one of the prison guards from the experiment who's now working as a, you know, mechanic in Wisconsin or something. <laughs> a torturer. And this guy... Yeah. <laughs> Now working in, you know, <laughs> telephone sales. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, this guy's hilarious. He just says, "Oh yeah, but I mean, like, so it was, but it was an it was an experiment. Like, you know, I was being an actor. Like, you know, they wanted me to. So I just, I really juiced it up. Like, of course, I was going to perform. You know, it, it was really was hilarious. he justifying it in hindsight? Well, he was just to... sort of saying." Oh, yeah. No, I did a great job. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it was an awesome, torturous prison guard. I know. It was sort of like, pfft, goes, you know, 50 years of psychological, <laughs> psych, psychotherapy. Anyway, um, it's, it's, it's a terrific book. And it's only, my enjoyment of it is only tempered by the part of me that really wishes that I'd written That's I was just mm. going to say exactly yeah. the same thing, which is it is a fantastic idea for a book. And like all things that are often... Bastard. I know. And to me, it looks like now that it's been done, it yeah. seems completely obvious. I like, know. why didn't I think and of it's doing over. He's left nothing as well. Like, you know, yeah. if someone had done a really crap job of it, you could say, well, I'm going to do that book, but make it actually good. Unfortunately, Ronson is a genius and it's yeah. just readable. It's full of work, you know, yeah. and insight. And it's just On this sub subject of envy for things that you mm. wish you'd written, sadly, it's not online, so we won't be able to link to it. But um, Tim Minchin wrote a book that's in the current issue. Uh, sorry, wrote a letter that's in the current issue of um, the book Women of Letters. Oh, great. I've got that. And it is so great. And it's basically about envy for things that you wish you had written or, or, or that you wish you could do. And he was saying... Not only is he envious, and I completely relate to this. Not like so, I look at John Ronson's book, and I'm envious of that because it's sort of in my area. I can write and yeah. I can interview people, and so I wish I'd done that. And Tim Minchin says, my level of you know envy and, and coveting other people's skills knows no bounds. I can go to an ice skating tournament having never ice skated and wish I were a better ice skater. <laughs> Immoderate envy. Yeah. If only I could cake decorate. Like <laughs> exactly. I remember when I, um, I've said in the podcast before, in the mid-90s I was a young arts reporter and I used to go to all sorts of things and I used to find it 
on a lot of levels initially really depressing because I'd look at people do awesome things. There'd be some things that I had always wished I could do, like play the cello, for example, and I'd see someone play the cello really well and I'd just feel completely full of despair thinking, I'll never do that. And being a good journalist just isn't that impressive. It's not that impressive. Um, I don't think anyone's going to ever come around to my house and I'm going to like write a story for them and they're just going to fall in love with me on the spot. But someone could come around, I could play the cello, they probably could. Also, you'd never be any use as an overseas volunteer. Like that's something that haunts me quite a bit like you know all these people with useful life skills I'd be so useful in that sort of post tsunami you know community reconstruction effort I'd turn up criticize everybody whinge talk about myself and then you know retire for drinks I go where are the flushing where are the flushing toilets I don't want the hole in the ground I want the flushing toilets useless I remember having to cover Hurricane Katrina when I was the US correspondent and ringing my husband on the satellite phone and just getting fleet outrage going I'm the Washington correspondent god damn it the gravest danger facing me should be a dodgy oyster at the National Press Club Um, and you were hacked to death. And by, I was hacked to know, death by people wanting to eat my stuff. Um, the other thing on the arts round too was the thing of, say, for example, you'd go and see the Sydney Dance Company. Mm. And I've never really wanted to be a dancer, but you'd watch people who are really great at it. And I would think, wow, I have completely missed, I will never, even if I dedicated myself from today forwards, I have missed that opportunity well, in life. you've got to start when you're two and when you're still all bendy. That That's you, exactly think, yeah, right. You're yeah. over it. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I've really envied this week, like quite badly, is, um, is that new series that's on the ABC. It's a BBC series um, called Inside the Commons. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, it's so good. So it's by Michael Cockerell, mm-hmm. who you know does a lot of kind of political stuff and profiles. He did a profile of Boris Johnson that made Boris Johnson really angry, which oh. um, I enjoyed about it. Um, and he's sort of – what he's done is, is lobbied, I think, for years the management of the House of Commons to let him make a series about how the House of Commons works. And it's fabulous. Right? Oh. So it follows, um, it starts off following a new MP and he's been given this incredible access, including to film on the floor of the House of Commons. Wow. And so, and he goes into and talks talks to all of those weird, weird people that hang around parliaments, you know, like the the Black Rod and the oh, Ushers yeah. and the Clarts and this is why I wear these frilly lace cuffs and so on. And looks at all of these kind of crazy ancient traditions and how how you get chosen to ask a question in question time or whatever. And it, and it's such a rich palette because Westminster is so gloriously bonkers, you know, and it's all in this sort of gothic pile that's falling down. There's this incredible sequence where they talk about the um, the cleaning of Big Ben, which happens once every four years or something. There's amazing footage of these guys, you know, kind of abseiling down the face of Big Ben. Anyway, it's just, it's so cool. And Could you not do that here? Yeah, well, I would like to. I reckon yeah. we should. I mean, we have the most famously unpermissive yeah. kind of authorities in in Parliament House. You'd have to. I mean, it would be tricky. I I think that he found it difficult to to. I mean, to film on the floor of the Commons is amazing, and mm. they eventually let him do it. But there's all this footage of MPs actually asking questions of the Speaker and saying, "Why is this film crew here? And do you think we could organise for this crew to be a you know?" put somewhere safe so that I'm not banging my elbows on this, you know, it's kind of <laughs> ridiculous. But it's it's a really good show because um, it, it burrows in a really engaging way into these 
really sort of atavistic, weird rituals and, and really kind of gives you an idea of how that place kind of smells and feels. Mm. It's, it's great. It's so good. Oh, and I, I wish I'd made it. And, but, you know, I may well just um, go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, Spe- unfortunately, we don't have quite as many gargoyles um, in our parliament house. That is true. Only the living ones. To go around. Yeah, just the living ones. <laughs> Speaking of the UK, do you know what has exercised me enormously this week? Jeremy Clarkson. Oh, Clarkson! And everybody cares, don't they? Oh, it's extraordinary how much people care. I couldn't believe it when I saw the BBC Director General had death threats over a motoring show. Look, I've got a lot of really mixed thoughts about this that, frankly, I should probably not work through on the podcast. We should just have a private chat. But anyway, what the hell? Let's live dangerous. Um, I love Jeremy Clarkson. Mm -hmm. I think he's hilarious. I think he's brilliant television talent. I have no interest in motoring whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Zero. Mm -hmm. I watch Top Gear because they just are funny and interesting and the cars are sort of just the background to them being funny and interesting. And I've also read Clarkson's column Mm. um, for years because... He's just funny. And mm. so he makes me want to read about cars because his style is so right. engaging. Yeah, yeah. So even the one that he wrote this week. Oh, so good, wasn't it? Oh, it was about being fantastic. chased, about the kind of the car you what, should. Um... What's the car you should have when you're having a really bad week and you're being chased all around the place? <laughs> Not this eye-catching ninja wagon. <laughs> was his general answer <laughs> he is so funny and okay he is he clearly is an ass he clearly is a rude offensive yeah. ass and yeah. i suspect that he's one of those people that you can be a fan of and love from a distance like me i bet if you had to work with him every day or live with him he would I'm be just appalling yeah. disgusting yeah. um but i think if you you don't hire a dog and then ask it to act like a cat yeah. basically mm-hmm. and so you hire jeremy clarkson he is an awesome front man. Um, he works incredibly well with that team. They have made the most successful television show in mm. the world. Um, like Put up with being Put up, yeah. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, it probably comes back to something we talked about early in the podcast, which is how brilliant do you have to be to get away with being a complete asshole, Right, yeah. Um, fairly brilliant, I think. Generally. Fairly brilliant, yeah. But, I, I mean, I personally think Top Gear will be unwatchable without Jeremy Clarkson. Like, I just think, how do you but have that show without Jeremy Clarkson? The, haven't they all I think they have. the plantation now? But even <laughs> pulling in, like, just trying to do that show. And, I mean, I'm not, not saying that Clarkson's the only person, you know, he did any work or whatever because it's brilliantly shot. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it looks – the way it's shot is part of the appeal. It's yeah. brilliantly produced. The segment ideas are awesome. Like, it is a fantastic show. They clearly have great producers. But it's also – the other thing that I was thinking about with it was it's interesting and I guess um, – this comes about because I was talking to a friend of mine who used to be a, a television producer on very um, prominent Australian programs and also worked for some prominent Australian mm. radio hosts. And he said to me, I blame the producer because where was Clarkson's steak and chips? A good producer would have had the steak and chips because he would have known that Clarkson's mm. the type of person who was going to need a mm. steak and chips. Now, oh, that sort of took me back a bit because I because the sort of prevailing narrative and what you tend to agree with is the Clarkson act. Like you can't, you just can't punch someone in the face because you mm. can't get a steak and chips. But it's interesting because I think, like, I know in my own role, and you would have it as well with the stuff you do. You've touched me surround- for not providing the right cake. <laughs> you would know. about this. <laughs> you would know. When Salzy's coming around, <laughs> have the damn cake. Um, I am surrounded all the time by people who are trying to make my life easier. And often I am not asking for things to make my life easier. People just do it for me because they're thinking... Really? I'm going to come and live at your house. No, not at my house. At work. <laughs> God, not at my house. Bloody hell. 
how it work. So to give uh, one chances of this thing ever being put up on the internet, zero. <laughs> Keep talking. <laughs> to give one example, when this is the man who just bought you a lovely microphone, like oh my god, seriously. <laughs> Thanks for the microphones. Um, so to give you one example, as everyone who listens to this knows, I've had this stupid cold for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, it's getting boring, I've got to say. I know. Mick, who is the floor manager on 7.30, who's the guy who is on the um, floor of the program with me, who's just awesome. Who has a lovely wife who bakes. Exactly. Um, he, I didn't, didn't ask for it, but one day when I came in and I'd been coughing and stuff, instead of a glass of cold water, Mick had delivered me a glass of warm water. Oh. So things like that happen in my life all the time. Like someone comes in and fluffs my hair so it looks nice. Um, I remember when I was pregnant, my producer at the time, Justin, um, I we were running late for a flight. He knows I always like to have a Trashy Who weekly or something on the flight because I was eight months pregnant. I was busting for a wee. I ran off to do a wee. I didn't have time to get a mag before I got on the plane. When I got on the plane, Aww. Justin said, I didn't know what to get, so I got you Who weekly and New weekly. So people do things like that for me all the time because they – in television, I guess there's this idea that the person who's the front person needs to be kept calm and so they're able to perform because if they can't perform, then it, the whole right, thing falls everybody apart. Everybody else's hard work, hard work is pointless. That's right. Now, if you are the wrong personality type and you have people around you all the time trying to make your life easier, I can see how you would develop the most massive sense of entitlement. And instead of thinking... You think it's normal. Right? That's right. You would think, isn't Mick a thoughtful person that he brought me warm water? Or isn't Justin a beautiful person that he got me the magazine? You would think, where's my magazine? Yeah, where's right. my warm water? And I just wonder if that's what's happened, or perhaps Clarkson started like that, that yeah. he's so used to being treated like that, that the idea that you would get to a hotel and there wouldn't be a steak and chips waiting yeah, for right. you. Um, so anyway, I found it all quite fascinating. Have you read? Have you ever read um, Piers Morgan's diaries? No. Oh my God! Right, I'm getting them for you. They're in here somewhere. They're up on the cool. shelf there. I'm gonna send you home with them because. Don't walk over. We're tethered to the island. <laughs> no, I, know, I was about to get up and walk. I know you were. <laughs> oh dear. Um, like one of those amusing dogs that gets to the end of its leash. Whoop! Yeah, there it goes. Um, so I. Um, there is an amazing account in um, Piers Morgan's diaries, which I will defend to my grave, even though Piers Morgan is, if anything, a more unpleasant person even than Jeremy Clarkson. But there is a real clash that happens between them, and he records it in his diary, which is, I've got to say, my favourite kind of diary, the blow-yourself-up kind. Right. Like he doesn't really spare himself. He tells everything. He's so indiscreet. That's why I love this diary. It's about um, his time editing the mirror, right? And so there's this incident where um, the mirror is um, obtains paparazzi shots of Jeremy Clarkson in some ridiculously small car, passionately kissing a woman who is not his wife. And they've got these pictures. And he rings Clarkson and says, right, we're running these pictures of you. And Clarkson goes to water and is kind of begging and sobbing and, Ooh. you know, and he says, I've, you know... I am not having an affair. I promise you I'm not having an affair. I can confirm that I'm not having... I can prove it to you. And oh. Morgan's like, what? And anyway, this whole thing ends incredibly awfully with um, Clarkson somehow turning up and delivering medical evidence that he's incapable of achieving an erection. Oh, and he's just sort of like, God! God oh <laughs> who was he crashing in the car? Oh, some woman that's oh. not his wife. I can't remember who it was. It wasn't anyone significant oh. like, you know... 
But I think that's a whole new, whole new complexion to the It was weird because he's always so, you know, cool, commanding and whatever. Like, this sort of depiction of him kind of on his knees kind of oh. adducing the evidence of his incapacity to achieve an erection to this com- preposterous tabloid editor. It's just the most disturbing passage of a book I've read in some time. It's just it's weird. <laughs> anyway, but I... So I, I'm kind of every time I think of Clarkson, I, you I think sort of, of that. think of that. Yeah. So what did you but, think of him being sacked? Like, did you think he should have been sacked? Or well, I think it's really awkward because um, it's kind of I mean for the for the BBC it's commercial suicide, right? Because oh. Top Gear is this incredible program for them. Um, but I I also like I don't know I don't really like that kind of tradition that grows up around superstars that allows them to behave in any way, you know. Like, I always think about Lucian Freud, who, you know, had 15 children, you know, on the wrong side of the blanket. And he just had relationships with women, then um, had children whom he kind of refused to see. He only ever kind of invited them around when he wanted to paint them. And I just think, wow, you know, what is it about great talent that makes you feel like you can behave like a complete shit? This is why I ask, is it because people are so kind to you or solicitous of you all the time that you just, I don't know, I don't you know. stop I exercising. Think just I mean, sometimes people who are very brilliant are just extreme personalities and, you know, they um, they don't care, you know. I, and people who are obscenely talented are quite often so obsessive about developing that area of talent that they block everything else out. And mm. it's a kind of difficult situation because in one sense they are they they bear that incredible attractiveness that extraordinary talent cloaks around itself mm. but you know at the same time you know being a really difficult person to live with i just think about peter sellers in the same way who yeah know, was you know i went i went fun. i once said to one of my best friends who's a television producer if i start turning into one of those people can you please take me aside and say you're turning into one of those sort of people and she said salesy the sad thing is the point at which I would feel compelled to tell you that, no mm. doubt you would think, oh, Kath just doesn't understand me anymore. She doesn't understand the pressures that I'm under. <laughs> Maybe you need to, like, um, establish a panic word or something. So, Welcome to the... I'll stop it. I, to say that. Um, I nearly had got that out of my system. <laughs> Speaking um, of um, men with sort of enormous egos to be managed, reminds me of um, Betty Churcher, who died oh. this week, who I just adored. I thought she was so... I hope that that's exactly how we turn out when we're... 84. Mm, already less elegant than that. I know. Okay, so it's all downhill from here. <laughs> that was an amazingly well-timed interview. I mean, like, you must be so pleased that you got to her. Oh, she was so generous yeah. to do it, you know, to want to mm. do it. And to, to for anyone that didn't see it, Betty Churcher, the former head of the National Gallery, did an interview with 7.30 about three weeks ago because she knew she was dying imminently and talked about her career and her life and her thoughts about art and her thoughts about dying and whatnot. It was an extraordinarily gracious interview and she's a beautiful person. Um, but she told me an hilarious anecdote. She, in that job, of course you're dealing with really big yeah. Paul Keating and Gough Whitlam and before that she was in West Australia running the art gallery over there and so she had to deal all the time with Robert Holmes Accord. Yeah. And she told this fantastic anecdote. I forget, I think it might have been a Pierre Bonnard painting and she was talking about she said Robert Holmes Court was just a complete pain in the neck, and Janet Holmes Court was delightful. Right, and Robert that was... seems to gel with the consensus. <laughs> does, and she said Robert uh, was with her one day and was complaining bitterly about oh bloody Janet's been spending my money again. And Betty said, oh yes, Robert, you know what's she done this time? And Robert said, 
she's gone and bought this painting. And Betty said, oh, is it by any chance, is it Pierre Bonnard? And he said, um, well, yes. And she said, is it a, is it a bathtub? And well, yes, it is. And, and is there a little slipper coming into just the you know, right-hand frame of it? And he said, yes. And she said, well, how much did she pay for it? And he said, Bobby Barr. And she said, oh, Robert, she's done you the most wonderful turn. <laughs> <laughs> she was just absolutely... Awesome. I thought she was a delightful person. She's very twinkly, isn't she? Yeah. Um, very I remember um, when, I think it must have been about 2003, um, easily a decade ago and a bit more in, at any rate, um, there was this like hilarious contretemps about the um, art collection at Parliament House. Right. And when they built new Parliament House, they adopted this incredibly fantastically <laughs> sensible and for... Um, visionary I think um, acquisition policy for artworks where they only purchased artworks from living Australian artists which meant that they'd got this sort of eclectic but fabulous collection of um, work by um, some some quite young Australian artists and of course it's also turned out to be quite a good investment because they've bought some things by people who've gone on to be Right. Superb, and so anyway, I love the art collection at Par- Parliament House. It's one of my favourite things about that building. But um, <laughs> about ten years ago, um, Tony Abbott <laughs> and Ross Cameron, who was still in Parliament and was his best mate in uh, in Parliament, launched this campaign to change the art collection because they described it as, in Tony's words, avant-garde crap. And they said, I'm constantly walking around the corner and seeing, you know, some, you know, melting face or whatever. (laughs) Why can't we have a few more landscapes? (laughs) Anyway, so they made this big issue of it in the party room and how it eventually um, sort of went, righto, and commissioned Betty Churcher to conduct a review of the acquisitions policy. And it was the most hilariously adept work of diplomacy this review because she reviewed it and found that it was fine but also suggested that perhaps they should consider for members with more conservative tastes the acquisition of some reproductions (laughs) (laughs) it was so beautifully done anyway she was a marvelous woman now as is always the case we're like nearly at our 30 minutes already let's talk about richard the third quickly quickly okay richard the third okay um so now completely obsessed with Richard III. Um, I love that he was found buried under a Sainsbury's car park or whatever. That was he was reinterred um, last week, of course. And um, I wrote this little column um, where, because just explaining my love for the whole um, Richard III, you know, there's a movement now to kind of rehabilitate him. The, you know, Richard III wasn't such a terrible guy kind of thing. Anyway, I put one line in the column about the global search for Richard III's descendants, where I said something like, you know, um, in the process of testing to find descendants of this famously um, vicious, brutal, politically relentless um, nephew murderer, um, it's understood that they um, did test Christopher Pine, but he was... (laughs) He was uh, not a match despite his repeated and some say insistent offers of further genetic material. <laughs> so this like hilarious idea of Christopher sort of sending toenail clippings off to the authorities. You know, <laughs> I must be related to him. Anyway, I didn't. I've never talked with him about Christopher Pine, uh, about the third, but he rang up um, after the column was published and said, Annabelle. Did you know that I'm actually a member of that society that's rehabilitating Richard III? It turns out he's a rusted-on fan of Richard III, like the least surprising revelation in the history of whatever. But Polly Toynbee wrote such a great column in The Guardian about 
this Rich the Third mania that's taking over Britain at the moment. And it's, it's just, it's this fabulously dismissive, oh my God, we cannot stop tugging our forelocks to to monarchs, even when they're just awful people like Richard III, like, snap out of it, everybody. And it was so great. It was really interesting and funny column and so mercilessly to the point. But it also reminded me of this fabulous article that I read years and years and years ago in The New Yorker, and it was um, Martin Amos's review of Four Weddings and a Funeral. Oh. And um, he also turned it into a piece about Jane Austen. And it was all about this That's British great. obsession with our social betters, you know. What is it with this obsession with aristocracy? And he writes this description of sitting through four weddings at a funeral, which is, it just made me bark with laughter at the time. And I read it again this week and just went, it's such a... And what is it? Well, so as he writes about how... Because he, he said a bunch of upper-class twits, you know, cackling at each other. He thinks the whole thing is the worst movie ever made. Like it, And the funniest part about it is, as he writes, it becomes clear that he's... He's gone to see the movie with Salman Rushdie, <laughs> right? So he's sitting there with Salman Rushdie watching Four Weddings and a Funeral. And then he says, um, the, real, the really annoying thing about the whole circumstance was that ordinarily he would have just stalked out of the cinema. But because Rushdie's there, they're there with this whole security detail. Oh. They can't leave the cinema because they're under surveillance by the, you know. <laughs> so he's got this great line where he says... Of all the atrocities that the Ayatollah Khomeini has authored, forcing me to sit through this pile of crap is the worst. <laughs> anyway, it's just, it's the most spectacular piece of writing, but he also, you know, talks about, there's a lot of talk about the sort of, at that stage, it was about 2006 or something, the Austin revival. And anyway, it's such a pleasure to read. Imagine if you were in that cinema and you'd go, you went, is that? You'd be like, no, you can't possibly. (laughs) You'd see the, you know, 18,000 security details. You'd think, oh, maybe it is. Um, When you were saying before about um, that creepy Clarkson anecdote, reminded me of something that I watched this week that was really creepy, which was, have you ever seen, it was an hour-long program, I watched it on YouTube, Clive James interviewing Roman Polanski. Oh, no, I haven't seen that. Yeah. Okay, it must have been, I'm guessing the mid-80s. I've yeah. just, because there's been so much stuff about Clive James yeah. recently, I remember when I was a, you know, teenager, I guess, I thought Clive James's chat show was great. Yeah. I thought he was so funny. Yeah. And I loved his books as well when I was young. And I need to, I feel like I need to revisit all of it. Yeah, I had um, that exact feeling when I read that Trent Dalton um, piece in The Weekend Australian. Yeah. Like, I didn't even... Yeah, remember the detail about what happened to his father, you know. So, anyway, keep going. Anyway, um, so he it was recommended to me um, to watch it by somebody just as a really interesting piece of interviewing. Yeah. It's it's done in a restaurant. The restaurant's empty. It's just those two at the table and they're served the a meal. restaurant not in America, one guesses. In Paris, <laughs> yeah, in Paris. Um, and it's, it's lit quite dimly, like it's quite a shadowy... Um, lighting. There's probably three cameras, one wide shot and one on each person. Yeah. And as you would know from Kitchen Cabinet, sharing a meal with somebody breaks down some yeah. barriers straight away. And also uh, the rapport was such that I thought that Roman Polanski must have been a fan of cl- what Clive right. James does because he seemed very relaxed straight right. away or that he knew him. But it was so creepy from the start because they have snails to open right. with and Clive can't get his snail out of the shell. And so Roman's helping him do it and then Roman says, you know, Oh, I, I, do you realise snails have the largest P 
penises uh, of any animal or something or other. And Clive's like, oh, no, and Roman's, oh, I learnt this. So there's this creepy sort of anecdote to open, and then Clive must be nervous because Roman then points out, oh, your hands are shaking. And so it's this really tense and awkward vibe but enforced intimacy with snails yeah and it's also because you know as a viewer it's a sort of warts and all interview where roman's going to talk about the murder of his wife sharon tate Mm. but also the child sex charges and he's just been released from prison basically and so you're waiting throughout the interview for this awkward uh moment to come up and so finally they're in the coffee before clive james raises it they've talked all about his film career and whatnot um and the manson murders and then i feel tense and anxious already i know so clive james says you know, when the books and magazines talk about you liking young girls, is there anything in that? That's oh, how he that's the coward's it. way out. I know. Like, you know, others have said yeah. that you are a, a relentless prick. <laughs> and then <laughs> Roman Polanski says, well, I like young girls. All men like young girls. And then Clive says, but the question hinges on how young. And then they go from Ooh. there. Yeah. Um, and it's the thing that was notable to me watching it was how – having the meal there provides a cover for this awkwardness because all of a sudden the audio turns into the sound of Clive James either breaking breadsticks or cracking crusty bread rolls becomes out of control. Cutlery, wine glasses being picked up. You can actually hear him chewing at one point. There's no eye contact because he's looking at the bread the entire time. It was actually really a very interesting device for, I thought, if ever I'm going to do a really awkward interview with somebody, Have that would perhaps help. <laughs> yeah. But it was a fascinating bit of television. And also, I mean, I just found Roman Polanski so creepy. And Clive did squib it a bit, I thought, with the sort of questions around that type of stuff. But Clive also had this great opening question where he talked about Roman Polanski being, I think, born or, or spending part of his childhood in a concentration camp. and Always a winner. Always a winner. And Clive said, I thought it was such a great way to get into it. He said, did you ever have a sense that because you were there from such a formative age that this wasn't how life was meant to be? Mm. And I thought that's a great way, to, rather than saying, you know, almost have been terrible yeah. or something really obvious. It was yeah. a really lovely sort of subtle way of getting into it, basically. No bread required for that one. No bread required for that. Um, The only other thing that I have been watching, just, you know, because as you know, I watch like 20 minutes at a a stretch, like one episode spaced over about two weeks. I've been recording this thing off the television called The Affair, which is a Showtime program, with the guy who was McNulty in The Wire. Oh, Oh, Dominic, is it West? Yeah, Dominic West. Um, who's English? Of he's course, English. But, yeah, you know, makes a really good American. He thing. does, and look, it's it's interesting enough. Like it's quite well done. No one near as good as Olive Kittredge that I was raving about the other week, but it's holding my interest. But the thing that I, I find most interesting about it is him. He has this quality that I've seen in a few uh, sort of film actors and people in real life. It's this idea of the very handsome man, but that there's a weakness slash corruption of them so it's like a rotten apple like they look beautiful Mm. on the outside but there's something about them that suggests that inside they've been corrupted so I reckon Michael Fassbender has it as well I think Ben Affleck has it a little bit um Jonathan Reese Myers definitely has it and Dominic West has it like very handsome but something not right or trustworthy or something about yeah but you'd still go there because <laughs> that's what he was like in the wild. That's you know, right, yeah. Just so flawed, and yet you'd still. Yeah, it's sort of a. I guess maybe there's a thing that you're drawn to that you want to try to fix it or whatever. Um, mm. I don't know. Is, is the handsomeness an important factor? Do you think? I think it is mm. because 
it's like the thing that's appealing about it is the juxtaposition between the handsomeness but mm. then this sort of um, rottenness yeah. at the same time. So yeah. it's a really interesting quality because when you, if you were to look at all those people I've just named, you wouldn't be able to say, oh, it's the look in their eyes or it's the set of their jaw. Like you look at Ben Affleck, yeah. he just looks like a very handsome guy. Yeah. But there's something about Ben Affleck to me that suggests – Maybe it's the characters he plays. I don't know. He's probably yeah. a lovely guy. But there's a suggestion of weakness or yeah. corruption, as I say. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you right. mean. I've just not really thought about it before, and now I'm trying to think of other people. that. Um, and then there's people that are handsome, and they just seem handsome through and through, like Matt Damon. Yeah. Like, there's no, there's or handsome no, and uncomplicated. Yeah. Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Like, very, yes, very handsome. Yeah. There's not no, the project. There's no shadowy. <laughs> <laughs> no fixing up required. <laughs> Um, anything and then else? There's, then there's kind of weird looking and complicated, you know, which is um, kind of compelling as well. Then like Steve Buscemi or something. Exactly. Yeah. Or people that are not... I love Steve Buscemi so much. People that are not conventionally good looking, but that you find, for whatever reason, ridiculously handsome or attractive. Mm. Like, I find that guy who was in the piano, um, very big, crooked nose, Adrian... Oh, yeah. What's his um, name? Adrian Brody? Brody, Brody. Yeah. I think he's oh, one of the most beautiful-looking men in the world. He's like, he outrageously looks... handsome. But I know, in that but, kind not, of, yeah. but in a really weird sort yeah. of way, like yeah. really skinny, beak-like sort yeah. of face. But there's something about him. He's really, really yeah. handsome. Being French is also helpful, I think. Oh, is he French? I thought he was American. I don't know. Oh, I'm I just going to look that up. Mm. Um, anything else that you've been reading or looking at this week? Or shall we sign off? Yeah, look, I mean, a few things, but I think we've already rabbited along now. Yeah, and I'm busy so. Googling Adrian oh, Brody for a range of complicated reasons. <laughs> well, we shall... Um... Adrian, I think I just thought he was French. Oh, he's an American actor. Okay, oh, American. back off. No, we'll leave, we'll, we'll leave oh, you with that then. Thanks for listening. Thank you. See you soon.